Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis, and this is On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today we're talking with documentary filmmaker Natalie Bebeau about her new doc, The Walrus and the Whistleblower, which looks at a place you know in Ontario where the trainers blew the whistle on alleged animal abuse. It's a match made in Marineland. The first time she set eyes on him, she was absolutely smitten. It's certainly not your typical love story. You were a trainer at one time at Marineland. Smooshy is a walrus who lives at Niagara Falls, Marineland. The only way really to do a story like Marineland is to have an insider. That was Phil Demers, the first whistleblower. Over the course of my tenure at Marineland, I was witness to things that people would never imagine. In response, Marineland's head veterinarian gave Global News a tour of their facilities, insisting the animals there are well taken care of. I mean, you can talk about, we take good care of our animals all you want. Obviously, something's terribly wrong. That was the choice. Walk away, move on, get a job doing whatever, and look the other way, or save Smooshy. If you live in Ontario, there's a good chance you know about Marineland, or at least its catchy theme song. Park lures visitors to its grounds every summer with the promise of sea lions, whales, and dolphins. But this summer, the park, like many others across the province, sits closed because of COVID-19. The documentary follows Marineland trainer Phil Demers, who was hired by the amusement park in 2000. His job was to care for and train the animals at the park, but he developed a special relationship with a walrus named Smooshy, who had imprinted on him. Basically, Smooshy thought Phil was her mother. But more than a decade into the job, Phil started to have grave concerns for the animals there. The animals that he had cared for, including Smooshy, were in trouble, so he decided to blow the whistle. Eventually, there would be in excess of 15 whistleblowers speaking out. And that's when Marineland had decided they'd had enough and they were going to start suing people in an effort to try to stop the bleeding. They had to make people scared to speak. We talk with Natalie about Phil and Smooshy's unique relationship, his fight against lawsuits, and Marineland's future, which now includes a baby calf that the walrus just gave birth to. Stay with us. Well, I, I guess, Natalie, my first question has to be how you got involved in making this documentary. I grew up in the uh, Niagara region, and so I have um, uh, a history of being aware of uh, Marine Land, of course. I, I went as a kid. My parents took us there a couple of times. And... Um, and uh, Phil happens to be uh, a very good friend of my brother's. They met when they were in kindergarten, and then they remained friends throughout their lifetime. Um, but since I was a couple of years older than my brother, I barely really hung out with Phil. I didn't know him. I would have crossed paths with him a little bit, um, you know, very sort of anecdotally in, in high school. Um, but then I left the region when I was about 17 years old studied at McGill and uh, traveled to Europe and lived in different places and then wound up back in Toronto and became a producer at the CBC. And while I was a producer at the CBC, uh, Phil sort of broke news as this trainer with an amazing love story 
uh, with a walrus. And of course, I was watching this like everybody else. I hadn't spoken to him in many, many years and was fascinated by it, um, but really was just an observer like everyone. And, you know, thought even at the time, I thought, oh, that'd make a great little story. But it was perfect for what was already happening in the media world. There were little, uh, uh, you know, like the National covered it, uh, the Inside Edition did a little piece on it. And so I thought that, you know, that that was um, good. Um, and then years later, I ended up leaving uh, my permanent job at the CBC to make uh, independent films. And uh, it was right around the same time that he broke news again as a whistleblower. And again, I thought to myself, wow, this is quite a story. You know, we went from seeing him uh, as a, a real company man uh, representing Marineland in, in a very positive light. And now he's saying the things he's saying. Uh, it was absolutely huge. I don't know if you remember reading the news at the time, but... It was uh, it was a huge media story that was very big in Canada. It even uh, uh, was published internationally, and so Phil was all of a sudden catapulted to this, um, uh, I guess, status as some kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say celebrity, but a, a sort of a, 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 you know, a person that was really well known in the in the news and uh, in this really uh, negative light. You know, everything he had to say about Marineland at that time was very difficult to hear. So I didn't actually do anything about it at the time, though. I just sort of watched it again, and I thought uh, that there was so much media interest that was going around. Um, I was doing other projects. Um, in fact, I was working on a film for TVO around that time. And, um, and, then, uh, and then some years went by, and the story uh, got a little bit more quiet in the media, and things started to um, happen behind the scenes. And I was not in contact with Phil or, or really many people from the region at the time. It was only when I decided that I really um, uh, needed to make a film of my own. You know, I had been working on other people's uh, films uh, for some time. I had been a series director for various CBC series. Um, I had moved to Montreal at that point. And uh, I decided that I wanted to make my first feature film. And this story had never left me. And so as I was... Uh, uh, you know, thinking about what it, what, what is it that I want to say for my first feature film? What kinds of things, what kind of topics do I want to look at? Um, this was a very strong choice. And so I started to uh, talk to Phil about it and it went from there. But um, so, I mean, I know that's a long answer to the question, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. No, that's, that's okay. Well, you mentioned uh, going as a kid and I obviously went as a kid as well. And I remember the commercials and everyone loves Marineland, that sort of thing. You know, if you were describing it though, to someone who hadn't heard of Marineland before, what would, what would you say about it? Marineland is uh, a family owned business that has been around for decades. Um, and it uh, broke uh, sort of records really in, in Canada in terms of its uh, success uh, with having marine mammals in captivity and many other animals. Um, of course, we never really, you know, put emphasis on captivity uh, all those decades ago, but um, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, an animal park, a marine park that has, uh, I think, thousands of animals, uh, both land and marine uh, animals, um, and is a, uh, a family theme park uh, that aims to entertain uh, the public um, with 
shows and uh, petting zoos and rides also. It has uh, a, a little roller coasters and things like that. It's an absolutely huge property. It's about a thousand acres. Uh, so if you go as a family, I mean, you can walk and walk and walk. It's one of the things that really comes up in the reviews actually is that the terrain is so massive that it just takes you forever to get around. Um, they used to have a little train, which I think they've actually started up again uh, last year, uh, where that could help you get around the park. Um, but it's a, it's a family theme park with uh, a lot of animals that you can get pretty close to. And it's a pretty pro- important part of Niagara Falls, isn't it? It's like a huge part of the economy there. It's, it's, it has been, yeah. I mean, certainly in the beginning, I would say in the first few decades, um, there are some statistics uh, that I'm aware of that um, uh, John Holler used to repeat often that he was responsible for more than 50% of the hotel rooms that were booked in Niagara Falls. Uh, yeah, so economically, not just for tourism, I mean, they really put tourism on the map in Niagara Falls because people used to go to see the falls and then they would leave. Um, they used to call it the, the magic hundred days. You know, they'd have a little blip in the year with lots of tourists and then everybody would go away. And uh, Marineland uh, ended up bringing families in that would then stay longer. And they created a lot of jobs as well. And where's John Holler from? He's from Slovenia. He was raised in Slovenia and uh, he came as sort of a, a, a younger man um, with very uh, few resources. Uh, he has said he came with $2,000 in his pocket. Um, and so his story is a, a bit of a new immigrant success story in a lot of ways. He had a dream. He put it together. He started very small. Uh, I think he used to charge about 25 cents to come see uh, a sea lion um, in a tank that he has reportedly uh, that he built himself, that he welded himself. And uh, it grew from there. Hmm. Well, let's talk a bit more about Phil, because you mentioned you, you, you said your brother knew him and, um, you know, he works at the park or he worked at the park. Uh, what was his, I guess, role? What were his responsibilities? He began as an assistant uh, marine mammal trainer. And uh, he tells me that one of the first uh, jobs he had was to clean uh, blood off the arcade floor. Um, and that a lot of the work that was involved in those uh, early days was really supporting the actual trainers and learning how to be a trainer. Uh, he eventually uh, grew in responsibility and seniority and became a, a senior uh, marine mammal trainer, as I understand it. And he develops this close friendship, relationship, uh, bond with a, a walrus by the name of Smooshy. Who is she? <laughs> Smooshy is a uh, wild-caught um, uh, walrus uh, who was brought into marine land at about 18 months of age. And uh, she came uh, to Marineland at a time when uh, having walruses there was fairly new. Uh, They hadn't had them for very long. Uh, They have had killer whales for a long time um, before that. But uh, and they had had belugas, but walruses were pretty new. And so Smushy came in as a baby. Um, And the story that Phil tells is really uh, quite extraordinary that um, during a routine sort of health examination, when they were drawing blood uh, from the new baby walruses that had come in, um, she was a bit um, combative and resistant to what was happening. And he tried to pull her away from the scene uh, so that the procedure could be done on another walrus. And it was in that moment that he says he put his hands up to her face she took a big, deep breath, and from that moment on, she followed him everywhere she went. Yeah, he said they imprinted 
imprinted her, herself on him or something. That's right. And, uh, you know, he didn't know what that meant at the time. I mean, he only learned it when he heard scientists talk about it because his relationship became uh, hugely uh, popular inside the park, inside Niagara Falls. Everybody knew about it. And then all of a sudden it broke uh, the regional barriers and it went all over the world uh, because he, you know, re reportedly could walk around the park with her without a bucket of fish. We were undergoing a procedure where we were trying to get blood work done. So the procedure is that you put the net on the walruses and then you wrestle them down and then a vet draws the blood. Smooshy was barking and she's climbing the trainers. So I sought to move her away from the scene. All I did was I'm tapping her. I'm tapping her to get her attention while she's trying to smash everybody. And she looked up at me and I put my hands in front of her face and she took this big breath and her nostrils went big and wide and her eyes got big. And at that exact moment, unbeknownst to me, I don't know this yet, but I've imprinted on her. It was this, and that was the exact moment. No question, the window was this big, it happened. And in that moment, I became her mom. So he could sort of get her to do things and have her follow him and put him on the back of his pickup truck, and he could even sit in the audience, apparently, with her sitting side by side, um, and without really needing any food as reinforcement, which meant that the emotional connection between them was uh, strong enough to do that. And um, and and I think, to be honest, it, I mean, uh, you know, we can talk about the relationship that, uh, or the whatever Smooshy might have felt for him, but this was um, possibly an even bigger deal for Phil himself. I mean, this was a really uh, deeply um, close connection that I think he relied on a lot for his self-esteem and um, and his identity. Yeah, he calls himself her, her her mom, right? That's right. And even his girlfriend, I mean, she Smushi showed a little bit of <laughs> jealousy towards her, didn't she? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he is at the center of a love triangle between his girlfriend and a walrus. A 900-pound female walrus chases a woman away from her handsome male handler. Love me, Moosh. See ya? Yeah? Give me a kiss. I love those archives in the film, actually, that uh, that show uh, Christine trying to get close to Phil, and you've got Smooshy that's sort of saying, no, 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 I don't think so, he's mine. Uh, <laughs> the, the media had a lot of fun with that one, that's for sure. Um, and they, yeah. they, re they repeated it, actually, several times with different reporters. That's hilarious. Well, eventually, I guess, his uh, relationship with Marine Land Sours. Can you talk a bit about what happened between Phil and uh, his employer, his former employer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, I mean, what I know about it is what uh, Phil has told me. I mean, this is his firsthand account of the decline of that relationship. But he describes um, wanting better conditions for the animals. Um, there's one thing that's, I think, really important to know about Phil is that uh, you know, and this is this what I've heard from other people in the region is that at the time that he was working there, he was not anti-captivity. He was nowhere near being an activist. In fact, he kind of mocked the activists that were outside, um, <laughs> who had been there for decades. Um, very small group of uh, of activists who uh, b have believed for a long time that marine mammals don't belong in pools, uh, but Phil really did not share their view. Um, and he, uh, what he did start to want is to see improvements in the quality of care. Uh, he really felt that the owner was not doing everything he could to keep those conditions as um, uh, up to par, basically, and and the at the highest standard that that they could be. And conflict started to arise. Um, 
And so as he requested very specific things or, um, you know, and, and Phil is an abrasive guy. Like, I, I won't mince words about it. Like, he is not a, a gentle soul. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I can imagine I wasn't there, but I can imagine that he would have been difficult to deal with. You know, he would have uh, really been very clear about what he wanted. Um, he, he calls himself, though, a, a company man in the sense that he really wanted to do well for Marineland. He wanted to represent them. He wanted Marineland to do well. Um, he's told me all kinds of really interesting business ideas that he had or renovation ideas like, hey, we should build a tower inside the beluga pool so that people can stand at the top and see the belugas from the air. And, you know, he had all kinds of really um, interesting ideas about how to develop the park. Um, And of course, these very specific ideas about how things could be better for the animals. Um, John Holer wanted to do things uh, his way. And and I don't think Phil felt uh, heard by, uh, I don't think Phil felt that his concerns were being heard. Um, and so things started to really get rocky and decline from there. Uh, Marine Land uh, will say and, and has said that one of the trigger points for the, or one of the flashpoints, let's say, in the relationship becoming sour is that Phil um, had been approached by a TV company to do a reality show. Uh, this was at the time when Phil and Smooshy had become very um, famous and there was a production company from Ottawa, I believe, who approached him to do a reality show about him and Smooshy in the context of Marineland. And um, Marineland did think about this for some time, um, it appears, and eventually decided that they um, that they didn't want to do it. And Marineland will say that that really pissed Phil off um, and that from then on the relationship just got worse and worse. Um and Phil, you know, agrees that he he did want the uh, reality show, but he definitely uh, contests the idea that his complaints about the conditions of animals had anything to do with with that. Um, but it, it was a, I think, a, from talking to Phil, I'd say the last few years were very challenging, and particularly the last year. So ultimately, he decides to, I guess, blow the whistle on Marineland, and what is he accusing them of, basically? He's accusing them of uh, uh, neglect. Uh, The word that he uses is abuse. In September of 2011, there was a uh, breakdown in the water disinfection unit. The ozone generator broke, uh, which meant we now had to rely on the increased use of chlorine. Sea lions had to get taken out of the water, isolated in dry environments for months on end. Well, their skin was just falling off. Their skin was bleeding. It was dry. It was crusty. They were in their own filth. We couldn't clean uh, their little stations adequately enough. They were writhing in pain. We couldn't get enough meds to them. Well, Smooshy was not immune to the effects of the water. She had chemical burns, so much of her fur was coming off. Her rear flippers were really red and inflamed. You bring the vet down, you're like, what the fuck her? Oh, oh, yeah, ee, ugh, that's chemical burn. Ah, ugh, okay, better get some antibiotics. You're like, oh, wait a second. Shouldn't we be getting the chlorine out of the water? What do you mean antibiotics? Shouldn't we be dumping this water? He says now that he is uh, completely anti-captivity, which is a a process. It's sort of a journey that he's been on. And uh, I think he's informed himself um, to the point where he's come to the the belief himself that he doesn't think any marine mammals should be in captivity at all. Um, 
but, uh, you know, in the very beginning, it really started as claims of uh, neglect and really keeping the animals in substandard conditions. And uh, so he's accusing them of not uh, investing in, in the right um, things or making the right decisions with respect to the care of the animals. And uh, one particular case is um, with malfunctions in the ozone generator in the way that the um, uh, the, the way that the water is treated, um, he had some complaints about that in the last year that he worked there. Um, and he says that they were not dealt with um, as quickly or as efficiently as they should have been. And that caused suffering uh, for the animals. And how did Marineland respond? Well, in the uh, short term, they responded with press releases that, let's say, um, confirmed the or expressed their point of view that they were taking uh, excellent care of the animals um, and also that Phil had absolutely no expertise and could not was not an expert and uh, could not be trusted uh, enough to uh, to really say anything about the conditions of the animals um, and they also tried to denigrate him a bit they um, you know they they said some sort of uh, uh, let's say, distasteful things about him. Uh, they, they wrote a letter to local teachers uh, in the Niagara region who were accustomed to bringing their classes to Marineland uh, and uh, said that he was not uh, to be believed and um, that he had, uh, I, I believe, um, something to the effect that he only had a high school degree or, or something like that and that he he was not a, somebody that should be listened to, essentially. And then very soon after they responded with lawsuits. And he's not the only one who came out against them and other former employees, I guess, also talked about the conditions there and, and they also faced lawsuits, correct? Yes. Uh, there were eight uh, whistleblowers in the first uh, stories that went out by the uh, Toronto Star who broke the story in 2012. Uh, eventually, there were 15 or 16 whistleblowers that came out and uh, uh Three of them, to my knowledge, were uh, sued. Uh, Christine Santos, who was Phil's girlfriend at the time, was the first. Um, and then uh, Phil and Jim Hammond were the other two who were uh, sued at the time. And then eventually, of course, Marineland sued uh, the media as well. And what effect did these lawsuits have on on Phil and on, on the other people who uh, blew the whistle? They were devastating. Uh, they were devastating. It's one of the things that I have really been thinking a lot about and I've been uh, observing and um, one of the things that I, I felt passionately about actually in making the film is trying to access, you know, what happens when you get into an epic battle that ends up at that level publicly, legally, uh, what happens to the private lives of these people? And uh, Phil's life, and this is in part a choice that I think he would agree with, he would admit, um, is that he's, he's really decided to stay the course. He's decided to fight really to the end. And uh, as a result of that, uh, his life has been completely uh, colored by this battle that he's having. And it's a lot of what he thinks about, you know, he's, he's really... Uh, taken by it it's it's really absorbed a lot of his life in the last eight years um and and it's been very very hard uh it's been very hard on christine as well she uh eventually as you learn in the film uh settled her lawsuit and does not and cannot speak about Marineland uh anymore and uh she, you know that's hard <laughs> that's hard 
Was it hard for you? Like, I mean, just in terms of, uh, I guess, concerns about a lawsuit coming your way if, for making this movie? It was always a challenge to, uh, it, even in approaching this story, in it, trying to find a way to do it that felt very authentic and honest and, you know, to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Um, and also to really get Marine Land's participation. I mean, I, I really wanted to uh, speak to them in a meaningful way and really get their point of view. I tried very hard. I tried uh, writing them often. There were a lot of letters back and forth. Um, and I hoped uh, and, and still hope to some degree that the hostilities of the past are in the past. Um, but the libel chill that surrounds this story uh, was ever present throughout the entire time of my filming. In fact, when I approached Phil about this story, um, I was shocked that there had not been a long form documentary done about it. Um, I really wanted um, to tell this story. And uh, but when I first asked him about it, I was convinced that he was already uh, being followed by a documentary crew because I thought, how can this not be already in production or how can this not already be in, in process? And uh, and I, I was wrong. And, and I, there have been many attempts, though. There have been a lot of people who have approached Phil to do this. And I, it's only speculation, but um, I have to wonder if this climate of libel chill, I mean, there were more than 10 lawsuits that were launched in relation to these allegations that came out in 2012. And I, I have to wonder if that has something to do with the fact that it had never really um, come to fruition. Um, so it, it was something that I've always been thinking about. But I really hope that uh, Marine Land, when they do get to see the film, can feel the nuances in it. And uh, and that ultimately the goal here was to tell a very important story that I feel needed to be told. And have the animals' lives improved at all since all this attention has come their way? Yeah, I can't answer that. I don't know. You know, I haven't been behind the scenes in uh, into Marineland uh, myself um, in the last few years uh, or, or ever really. I mean, I've never been uh, obviously an employee there, so I don't know. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think that there. I, I've spoken to people who have worked there recently, and they have uh, quite a bit to, to say. Do you know if it's hurt their business, all this uh, negative press that they've received? I don't have any evidence to support um, it to be able to answer that. But I do anecdotally, I can tell you that people in the area uh, say that the parking lot, if the parking lot is a reflection of popularity, um, uh, business is not what it used to be. Uh, so uh, the when I was a kid, certainly, I mean, sometimes you would have to line up on the main road in order to get into the parking lot, which could be a kilometer long. I, I don't know, but it's a very long parking lot. And it used to be packed, 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 packed. And there are some days where the parking lot looks like it could be sort of full. Um, but those days are, are uh, less frequent than I remember as a kid. And people who live in the region still say that... Um, that the days of it being completely overflowing, um, ha we haven't seen those uh, in, in a while. So I think that the paradigm shift that we're seeing in our relationship with animals and and certainly, um, you know, I think the bill that's recently passed that bans the captivity of whales and dolphins and, um, you know, the, 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 the eyewitness accounts of people who've worked there, um, I, I don't think that that has um, helped, but I, I don't know the details. Yeah, that's interesting how our relationship with animals seems to be changing. I, I noticed that uh, there's been a lot of attention around this because of things like uh, coronavirus and, and just these these wet markets that existed. And, and also there was Tiger King that was really popular on 
on Netflix. And I guess I just wonder if you think the next 10 years or if you can look forward to the future, just how our relationships with uh, animals might change. Mm. Yeah, no, I think <clears throat> I think that the uh, it what, what began um, as a movement uh, that I would say was in the fringes um, it, this movement is now uh, much more mainstream. And I think that more and more and more this connection to our planet as a whole is going to affect our connection with the species on it. And so as we uh, ask ourselves these hard questions about where we're going in, in, in those relationships, um, I think we're going to see, uh, for example, a lot more uh, vegetarianism, which I, th I think we're already seeing. I don't have any statistics on that. But um, anecdotally, I can tell you that a lot, of, a lot of people around me are starting to make those choices. And, and I think that, um, you know, this, this idea of this sort of anthropocentric um, view of the world uh, is lessening in some circles and so how we how we we you know we we tend to believe that we want to hold on to things that we love you know if you if you love something you want to own it you want to have it you want to touch it you want to feel it and while we still have that instinct I think that that desire is going to be balanced with an understanding of morality and empathy for for the species that we're talking about or for the planet. And so, I, I don't know, I think things are going to change very quickly. And when I think about the coronavirus as well, if I put that into the mix, um, I'm sure there are people who will want to press on with the economy and return to things to normal as much as possible. But I do think there's a large swath of the population that is going to resist that and uh, try to use this as, a, as an opportunity to reimagine our relationship with the planet. Well, let's finish up on this. Uh, Phil and Smooshy, do you think they'll ever be reunited at some point? I, uh, <laughs> I used to think so. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I used to think so. Um, I am an optimistic person by nature, and I always imagined that uh, Phil and Marine Land would bury the hatchet. I just, I, I just really believed that that was possible. Like, I want to make it subtle that she finds me. I don't want to find her, I want her to find me. I want to just be there, and I want her to do what she does, so she'll check the environment out. And I want her to sort of stumble upon me, and I want to just see naturally what that reaction is. I don't want to solicit a reaction, I want to see what happens. I just want to blow into her nose, because that's how we would communicate. But if I can do that, if I can just have that face right here and then blow into that nose, and, you know, just to see those eyes glow again. Oh my God, it's, uh, it's impossible. It's like, uh, it's the impossible. I'm going to hold on to that hope. Um, but um, at the moment, it, it does seem far away. Uh, but you know what? Anything can happen. I mean, as Phil says in the film, he says it's, it's the impossible dream. And uh, stranger things have happened. So we'll see. Well, I really enjoyed it, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Natalie. This was great. Yeah, thank you very much, Colin. I appreciate it. And that's the podcast. The Walrus and the Whistleblower is now streaming on CBC Gem. If you liked what you heard, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or better yet, tell a friend. If you want more on Doc's content, you can find episodes on our website at tvo.org. This podcast was produced by Matthew Amara and me. Our production support coordinators are Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Howell. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor, and our executive producer for digital is Kathy Vay. We'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>